2: Josh Lavinitz died on August 7, 2017. And for almost three years, I didn't know his cause of death. Josh was 39 years old when he died, and his death was totally unexpected. That's why the state medical examiner decided to do an autopsy. She ran a battery of tests, inspected the body, and wrote up everything she found in an autopsy report. It's a 15-page document. And it was the only thing that could confirm exactly how Josh died. Back in 2017, I couldn't get access to that report. But three years later, I finally got a copy. After it came in the mail, I called up my editor to debrief.
3: All right. So.
2: Yeah. You want to open it up? I had never read through an autopsy report before. Do I just read it to you? It is a startlingly detailed document. An examination of the body of Joshua Lavenitz is conducted by... For example, it includes Josh's height in inches and the weight of his heart in grams. There are other details, too. Details that would make it impossible to think it was describing anyone other than Josh. Identifying marks and scars. There are tattoos as follows, an angel figure with the name's dates, Caleb William, 320 On the left side of the chest, a mountain scene with the phrase, the mountains are calling, and a puzzle piece on the anterior left wrist. There are no- the fingernails are very short, dirty, and appear bitten. Wow. This is very intimate. It goes on and on like this. And then, on page six, I find what I'm looking for. The medical examiner's conclusion. Based on the investigation report and autopsy findings, it is my opinion that Joshua Lavinitz, a 39-year-old Caucasian man, died as a result of acute fentanyl intoxication. Cause of death, colon, acute fentanyl intoxication. Manner of death, accident. I had gotten a tip this might be the case. That tip is why I went looking for the autopsy report again. And now I know. It was an opiate that killed Josh. But seeing that written in black and white it doesn't make it any less surprising. There is so much information in here that is affirming of the person that I of like what I observed. He was a nervous guy, like totally makes sense. He would bite his fingernails. He loved the mountains. Of course, he had a tattoo of, of the mountains on him. He was so proud of his son. Of course, he had his name tattooed on him. And then, I mean, it, makes, it just makes zero sense to me that he would end up using fentanyl.
3: What do you want to find out now?
2: <sighs> I-, I want to know how he got the fentanyl. I mean, it doesn't align with, like, the the person I knew. And then also, I mean, it's weird as a reporter with this, too. It's like a big mystery for me. It's a genuine mystery. Why did he die? How did he die? And at the same time, it's like a real, genuine human life that's lost that I wish he were still alive. From New Hampshire Public Radio, this is Supervision. I'm Emily Corwin. Episode 5, Caleb. And just a warning for those who might be sensitive to what's coming, this episode deals with domestic violence. Josh dying from a fentanyl overdose? I guess it should have been obvious. He was released from prison straight into a national opiate epidemic one that has been particularly deadly in New Hampshire. And people like Josh, they are so vulnerable to this very thing. There's this study that came out of Massachusetts a year before Josh died. It found that people recently released from prison are 56 times more likely to die of an opiate overdose than the general public. So maybe it shouldn't have been such a surprise to me. But it was.
1: I'm not a drug addict. A lot of people that I'm not
2: a drug addict. Josh said that twice on this call. It was the first time I ever spoke with him. He was still in prison. You
4: know, I don't do heroin and all that crap.
2: Josh said it was alcohol that was his problem. Here he is in another interview. Is is alcohol abuse something that you've struggled with in the past?
1: Yeah, you can say that. That was my pretty much my drug of choice, you know. Um, not much of, I don't like needles, so that eliminates that whole thing. I don't, I can't stand needles, so, but... Josh looked yeah. down on
2: people who used opiates. He called them junkies. He had this disdain for the drugs, which he'd bring up unprompted. Like when we were in a park and an ambulance drove by.
1: Yeah. Um, I will never, oh, another overdose. Hmm. Yeah, there's uh, three overdoses this uh, this weekend.
2: Why does it make such an impression on you? What's that? The the drugs. Uh, it
1: was whatever happened to good old weed. Um, it's just, yeah, it's just crazy. It's out of control. And I think it all goes back to uh, the prescription
2: drugs. Josh knew about the origins of the epidemic. He knew about the role of prescription painkillers and how overdose deaths were increasing at alarming rates. He seemed fully informed. It's one thing for me, a reporter who only knew Josh for a few months, to be surprised by his overdose. But I wasn't the only one. People who knew Josh much better than me, they were shocked too.
5: That's the thing I don't understand is for the most part, he was very, very, very against hard drugs, very against it.
2: That's Becca Joy, Josh's ex and longtime friend. Another friend, Trisha Fariso. She says she doesn't even fully believe it now.
5: Every time I talk to him, it
2: never, ever, never touch that stuff. I never do it.
4: He swore to me he wasn't doing them. He hated them.
2: That last voice is Elaine Shern, Josh's stepmom. One reason it's so shocking to Elaine is the way that Josh used to treat her daughter, who struggled with addiction for years. Elaine says Josh used to rail against her daughter for using.
4: I don't know. If that night was his first time doing it, or if he was doing it all along, I have no idea.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: I just know that he just kept saying, you know, I don't do the drugs. I don't, I don't do it. I don't do it. I don't do it.
2: I was really grateful that Elaine agreed to talk to me. Yeah. Because yeah. until my conversation with her, what I knew about the night Josh died was incomplete.
6: Were you home that day, like, that he
2: died? Yes. It was early August, and Josh and his stepdad were having a cookout, something they loved to do. There were six people at the house that night. Elaine and Josh's stepdad, who's since died, Josh's stepsister and her boyfriend, and Josh and his friend from work, a guy named Brandon. Josh was drinking along with everyone else, A violation of his parole. And then Elaine's daughter, Josh's stepsister, she noticed something. A detail she told her mom about later. Josh and Brandon, they kept going upstairs to Josh's room. They kept coming in
4: and out. It didn't dawn on me that they were doing anything. And then my daughter, Lainey, she went upstairs, you know, past his room, pretending she was going to her room. And... She said that she could hear the sniffing. And she goes, Mom, it wasn't like a cold sniff. not a regular, it was a drug sniff.
2: Sometime later that night, Laney and her boyfriend drove home. That left just one person awake at the house when Josh died. Josh's friend from work, Brandon. He was the one who called 911. And when police arrived, they spoke with Brandon first. He told them he had not seen Josh use drugs. So then the police went upstairs, and they knocked on Elaine and her husband's bedroom door. Oh, God. So so who woke you up?
4: Woman police officer knocking on the door. Uh. I assumed he was getting arrested, and uh, she was like, well, we're here to inform you that he's deceased. I'm like, whoa, what? <laughs> I wasn't expecting uh. that at all.
2: In your bedroom, huh? Yeah. It sounds like Josh snorted the fentanyl. That much was not in the autopsy report. But how did he get a hold of it? Who gave him the drugs? One person was in a position to know.
4: Brandon was the only one that knew what happened. And
2: um, he left after he talked to police. He took off and I never saw him again. Here's what I know about Brandon, Brandon Olschlager. Josh met him at the Roofing Company, the job where, Josh told me, people showed up high to work every day. Also, the local police chief told me Brandon was familiar to his officers. His criminal record includes more than a decade of drug and property crimes. I spoke with Brandon's two closest family members. They told me, It was entirely plausible that Brandon would give his friend fentanyl. Elaine, she's certain it was Brandon who gave Josh the drugs that killed him.
4: So I went to the Milton Police just to see if I can get a report or what. You know, Brandon said, and that's how I found out Brandon had died of an overdose.
2: Six months after Josh died, Brandon died of an overdose too. When I talked to Josh before and after he got out of prison, so many times he told me his age. He was 39. He'd say, I should be farther ahead than I am. Josh had ambitions. He wanted to hike mountains. He wanted to reconnect with his son. He wanted to make his mom proud. What was going on in his head? What led him to mess with such a deadly substance? This was what I was trying to find out when I called up Trisha and Becca. You heard them a moment ago. They told me Josh was very against hard drugs. And that's why I was taken aback by something else they said. Did you know Josh to use drugs earlier in his life? Um, So the situation with this is they knew Josh had a history of drug use. I've known Josh to smoke weed. I would know that he dabbled in things. He
5: went on like a little bender one time with um with Matt, Crystal Matt.
2: What do you mean when you say that? Like which things? Coke, pills. Trisha and Becca are not naive when it comes to drugs. Becca is in recovery, and Trisha's ex-husband overdosed more than once. And yet, here I was, listening to them lay out a pattern of behavior that they themselves didn't seem to recognize.
5: I think it was pain pills or something like that. Probably oxys.
2: At so he one, had, he had done opiates, just not with needles.
5: Yes, yes. I didn't even think of that. I didn't even think of that part of it.
2: All of this — coke, pills, crystal meth — and neither of them saw Josh's overdose coming, I can think of two reasons why that would be. First, there's no evidence Josh spent years or even months in the grip of addiction the way Becca had or Trisha's ex-husband had. And second, and more importantly, I think Josh was very good at getting people to see the guy he wanted to be. Myself included. He wanted me to see, I've always felt like he wanted me to see him as, as...
6: The good guy? Yeah. No, yeah, he wanted me to see the same thing, but that's all sides.
2: Josh's mom, Diana Shaw, has hovered around the edges of this story. She was supposed to pick Josh up when he was released from prison, but she couldn't make it because she had to work that day. And at the hospital, after Josh's seizures, I watched her rush through the ER to get to her son, but I didn't share more than a word with her. And she was someone Josh talked to me about with a kind of yearning. He hadn't wanted to break her heart by going to prison. After Josh died i messaged Diana maybe too many times she didn't want to talk when i was working on this story back in 2017 like i'm just curious what you were experiencing when i was sort of prodding you grief <laughs> yeah <laughs>
6: that's one word was grief every time i turned around something reminded me of Josh Everywhere. I was working at Walgreens, even there was a magazine on hiking the mountains right there. (laughs) I says, I got to get out.
2: Get some peace of mind. Diana did get out of New Hampshire. A year or so after Josh died, she moved to Florida and got a nine-year-old dog to keep her company, a miniature pincher she named Gypsy. I asked Diana the same question I asked everyone after reading Josh's autopsy report. I guess I'm curious to know if you were surprised to learn that Josh had died because of fentanyl. Um,
6: no. I wasn't surprised from the fentanyl, no.
2: No? How how
6: come? Even though he told me he wasn't doing any drugs, I have, I know my son. I'm
2: sure he was. Really? How did you know he had been using drugs?
6: Um, Because we were out one day at the Chinese restaurant and he excused himself and I heard him violently vomiting in the men's room and he tried to hide it. And that's when I figured I thought he was doing some drugs.
2: Diana is the only person I spoke to who wasn't surprised by Josh's overdose. And as I talked to her, I found myself circling around this question. And like, how do you make sense? I mean, am I... When I sort of, I sort of think of Josh as having two sides to him, right? The one that he wanted me to see. I've always felt like he wanted me to see him as, as... The good guy? Yeah. Yeah,
6: Well, he wanted me to see the same thing, but I'm his mother. I saw all sides.
2: When Josh got out of prison, there was a lot he needed. Like housing, transportation, a job, logistical things. But here's something else I think Josh needed. I think he needed a way to be honest about his failures and still see himself as a good guy, despite those failures. Because when the truth didn't make him look like such a good guy, he pushed it away. He told half-truths. And he lied. Not just about his drug use. He lied about his criminal record. I mean, like, tell me about what landed you here.
1: Um, I just pretty much blacked out, and I just started, you know, fighting everybody. And it just wasn't good.
2: This tape is from the state prison in New Hampshire, where Josh was locked up for beating his ex-wife and her son. What you're about to hear, I played a little clip of it in another episode. This is the whole conversation.
1: Between not taking my meds and drinking is just a bad combination.
2: Um, was it a single, totally out of the blue moment, or was it something that was happening really regularly?
1: Oh, it's out of the blue. It's just boom, like a light switch, you know. Um, that's why it's important that I take my meds so I can my mood can stay consistent. And it's my self esteem and everything's been much better since I've been on my meds. And
2: you were feeling like. Was it? A, you said you were in a in an unhappy relationship. There must have been some anger or something. Like, you, what? What can? What sort of? How can you explain what? What was stewing?
1: Um, it was just a sour relationship I had um, with my ex, um, and it just wasn't getting better. And it, it was always constantly on my mind, and it it just wasn't healthy. You know, um, a lot of fighting and arguing and stuff, so.
2: So I didn't exactly buy this explanation, but I barely knew Josh. I thought I'd bring it up again. A few months later, he was gone. Listening back to this now, though, I hear Josh avoiding my questions. He's shifting the conversation to things he's comfortable talking about his meds, his drinking. What he's not telling me is that he was a serial domestic abuser. That's what I learned from his exes. Josh went to prison for violently assaulting his ex wife and her son on one singular night. But that ex, Joyce Davidson, she says he violently assaulted her for years. After Josh threw her into the table, Joyce says she had to have gallbladder surgery. I also tracked down Josh's ex before Joyce. She told me the same kinds of stories, only maybe worse. She didn't want to be recorded. And before that ex was Becca.
5: He was really, really like violent with me at times. And when I started sticking up for myself and he knew I wasn't going to put up with it anymore, that was kind of like when we were done.
2: Talking to Josh's exes made two things suddenly clear. First, although Josh had assaulted his partners for close to 20 years, law enforcement was rarely involved. And second, there was a time when law enforcement did intervene. And I had missed it. Because I wasn't looking in the right place.
5: He, this wasn't his first time going to jail. Um, he did spend um, some time in Maine. Was it Maine? It might have been Maine.
2: Hmm. Okay. Gosh. I didn't know Josh had lived in Maine. After I talked to Trisha, I requested Josh's record in that state. And there it was. He had two felony convictions in Maine, one an assault against a cop, the other an assault against a girlfriend. He spent more than nine months in prison. The first communication I ever had from Josh was a letter he wrote me from the prison in New Hampshire. At the very top of that letter, he says, this is my first prison sentence. The first thing Josh ever told me wasn't true. As I went along, I discovered these blind spots in my earlier reporting. Josh's level of violence, his previous felonies, his drug use. Altogether, it made me realize that to really understand what was going on for Josh, What made it so hard for him to rebuild his life after prison? I needed to look back earlier, to well before he went to prison.
6: One time we were talking in my car, and I I said, Josh, what is wrong? And he says, Mom, I really don't know.
2: What made Josh do the things he did?
5: I have no idea.
2: I okay. just know
5: it happens when he's drinking. Yes, I believe him drinking is a bad combination, definitely. He was a good person. He tried hard to be a good person. But he did have mental health issues.
2: I know Josh was kicked out of kindergarten for hitting kids. I know Josh's mom left when he was 14. I know she left him with his stepdad, who struggled with alcoholism. I also heard Josh was seriously abused as a child. But only one person told me that, and I couldn't confirm it.
5: But he didn't like to talk about his past. That was his issue. He didn't want to go to therapy because he didn't want to talk about his past. He didn't want to talk about any of that.
2: The only thing Josh's friends and family knew for sure was Josh had these two sides. It was like there was one guy who was earnest and loving and wanted to help, and another guy who was none of those things. And how do you make sense of that? I don't. I can't. I, I couldn't. Here's what I think. Josh told me he wanted to do better on the outside. And I take him at his word. But I think he needed a lot of help. And I can tell you one thing. Josh's prison sentence was not designed to be helpful. There's this document in his case file... At one point when Josh was in prison, he asked a judge if he could get out early on work release. The judge said no. Josh's sentence, the judge wrote, quote, was designed primarily to be punitive and not rehabilitative. Every kind of help I saw the state try to give Josh wasn't very helpful. Here's what I mean. Josh was required to take some group classes in prison, including one on healthy relationships. But for the most part, those two years he was locked up, he lifted weights, read lifestyle magazines, counted the hours in a gymnasium full of 50 other men. Like the judge said, for Josh, prison was meant to be punitive. And it was. It hurt him. It hurt his chances when he got out. It cost him his housing, his job, his contact with friends and family. In theory, it's parole that's supposed to help him get those things back. As far as I can tell, there was only one kind of help he got a place to live, that transitional housing. But the day after he moved in, they kicked him out because he couldn't stay sober. There's another thing I think Josh needed help seeing himself honestly with all of his flaws, but still as a person who deserved to be loved, who didn't have to be violent. I remember him telling me he was supposed to go to therapy on parole, and I remember him saying he wanted to go. I can't verify for certain, but I'm pretty sure he never went. I just keep feeling like what Josh really needed was some kind of safe space where he didn't have to worry about mooching or falling off a roof at work. Some way to take the external pressure off so he could look inside himself.
6: I guess I'm really excited to be talking to you. Um, did you listen to the podcast?
3: I haven't listened yet because my mom warned me about it and I might get sad. And yeah. I'm kind of like a little bit afraid because I haven't heard his voice in a couple of years.
2: This is Caleb Lavenitz, Josh's son. When Josh died, he was 16 years old. It was Caleb who helped me bring some closure to this story. Because... He's the one who got me Josh's autopsy report. The state gave him access to it when he turned 18. And as I talked to Caleb, the same word came to mind, as did the very first time I met his father, Josh. That word is earnest.
3: So I get told all the time that I'm just like my dad in every sense possible. Like, I even look like him. We have the same nose. Like, we have the same kind of, like, sense of humor. We just basically, like, we have the same good side. And then on the other side of things, my dad could be very scary. He could be your best friend or your worst nightmare. And I'm still scared of going down the same path that he went when he got older.
2: I'm a little scared for Caleb's future, too. It's like he knows the steps his father took and where that led him. But it seems hard for Caleb not to follow in Josh's tracks.
3: If drugs can get a hold of you, they will keep hold of you and they will ruin your life no matter
2: what it can be. But then he can't seem to avoid making the same mistakes.
3: I myself have done my fair share of different drugs. If you want, I could tell you like a list of them or something. (laughs) Sure. I smoke marijuana pretty frequently. I do what's called DABs. I'm not sure if you know what those are.
2: No, I don't. They're THC crystals, crystals mushrooms, the, uh, LSD, cocaine.
3: MDMA. Uh,
2: something I had never heard of, called lean, is,
3: lean. Lean is the codeine inside of a cough syrup.
2: Oh, okay. Caleb volunteered all this to me, eagerly like you heard. He also told me that when he was a little kid, Josh was violent. He said he struggles with bipolar disorder, just like his dad did. And he said he spent his teens in and out of group homes. Now, Caleb knows it's possible to bounce back from adversity. His mom, Becca, is his role model. He watched her overcome addiction.
3: She's like Wonder Woman to me. I look up to her so
2: much. Caleb also got high honors in his senior year of high school. That's the year right after his dad died. It's been one thing after another for Caleb. Like, right before his dad died, his best friend died, too, by suicide. Oh, gosh. I'm so sorry, Caleb.
3: Yeah, it's like, after a certain point, you learn to kind of, like, cope with it pretty easy.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. That is a brave thing to say. I can't imagine it's true. This is how my conversation with Caleb goes. Adversity, then something hopeful. I get flashes of his intelligence, his integrity, then more adversity.
3: I also currently can't go home right now. There was some issues at home with um, my stepdad.
6: Can
2: I pry a little bit?
3: Um, You can pry. Yeah, what's
6: going on with your stepdad?
3: So there was one morning he started just being really rude at like five in the morning to my mom. And he started slamming doors. And when he went outside, he was like talking crap.
2: Caleb says his stepdad pushed him. Caleb got a knife and the stepdad called the police.
3: So I ended up getting arrested for a criminal threatening. And they put a no contact order on my mom and me. And
2: him. Hmm. Caleb's prior charges, those were in the juvenile system. That was all wiped clear when he turned 18. This incident with the knife is his first charge as an adult, a domestic violence charge.
1: Uh, On Facebook, yeah. How was it? It was
2: good. I wonder what made it so hard for Josh to be honest with himself about his weaknesses. I wonder what he needed to be able to confront those demons. I wonder why Josh didn't visit his son in the three months he was out of prison. I know he wanted to. I
1: I miss my son.
2: When do you think you'll see him?
1: Hopefully soon. Soon as possible.
2: If you are in an abusive relationship and you want help making a plan to get out of it, you can call the Domestic Violence Hotline. Their number is 1-800-799-SAFE. If you're unable to speak on the phone safely, you can go to their website, thehotline.org. And if you think you may be mistreating or hurting your partner, you can get help at the same place.
3: Supervision was reported and hosted by Emily Corwin. It was produced by me, Jack Rodolico. Editing by Dan Barrick, Erica Janik, and Maureen McMurray. Additional production by Jackie Fulton. Digital production by Sarah Plord and Rebecca Lavoy. Special thanks to Vermont Public Radio. And thanks to Nick Cappadice, Hannah McCarthy, Corey Princell, and Jason Moon. Supervision is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio.